All right. We're ready Welcome. to start another one. We've, we've done it again. Welcome back, y'all. We've done it again. We've started recording. We've started. Again. Success. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, I'm Jake. I'm Wyatt, and welcome to Super Duperstitious, the paranormal podcast about the science of the spooky. Should we just say that from now on? We could. I don't know that it matters. I kind of like trying to think of a different way to word it every single time. I do too. So, yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk about something strange, and then we're going to put something to it that'll break it down. How about yeah, that? Yeah. Trying that to make it try, science it. We're, we're going to try and science, science it. the heck out of it. Yeah. Much like Matt Damon in Martian Man. We do what we do, and what we do is this. Yeah, boy. Um, and what are we doing this week? We're doing a mysterious artifact, yes, I guess? Yes, I think that's a good way of uh, articulating our topic. Yeah, we, uh, so just relics of the past that have uh, just some kind of uh, aura of strangeness around right, them. Right, a weird story to them, but they are all still very real. Before we do that, I do want, I have another update on the Phantom of the Chicago. Oh my. Act. 35, I believe. Something like that. In the ongoing opera saga. To recap, uh, the Phantom of the Chicago <laughs> is the supposed giant humanoid flying bat creatures that have been terrorizing the Chicago area <laughs> since all through last year. I like that the Phantom is, <laughs> is a series creatures, of yes. creatures. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a hive mind like kind that. of situation. Yeah. <laughs> this week I've just got a short update due to a cool post by Redditor Far North Side. Quote, I believe flying humanoid witnesses are likely seeing many things here in Chicago. Some creatures may be supernatural, others cryptozoological, and almost certainly a fair portion of sightings are of mundane, misidentified animals. So let me propose a candidate for that final department. Eagles, or to be more precise, juvenile bald eagles, who are similarly sized to mature bald eagles, but are dark-plumed, having yet to develop the characteristic white-headed baldness sported by adults of the species. Yes. In February 2017, an extraordinary convocation of 14 bald eagles, including 11 juveniles, were reported inhabiting an area near Lake Calumet. He just wanted to use the term for a group of eagles, didn't he? Yeah, I think maybe. He's like, a constitution of eagles <laughs> came flying in. Uh, this is very near where the fifth reported sighting of the 2017 flying humanoids occurred, where a witness described the creature as looking, quote, uh, double quote, I guess, <laughs> like, this is within the quote, uh, like a giant bird, but it was solid black. The thing was unlike any bird we have seen in our lives. It was solid black and had to be about the size of a full-grown man. Mm. Had wings that must have been 10 feet from tip to tip. <laughs> um, now, bald eagles have uh, you know, a seven-foot wingspan, so pretty damn so close. So close, yeah. yeah and they, um, they weren't super common in the Chicago area until recently. They used to be and then had... Um, you know, kind of right. been uh, kind of died back, and now they're making a comeback, and so that could help explain the idea of I like that. some animals moving in just this past year right. that would be new to people there. Having so, having seen a bald eagle on wing, it is definitely a bird that'll make you do a double take. You're like, that is a it's very big, large flying creature. There's a nesting pair in my home, uh, my hometown in, in my Maine. home. In my <laughs> nesting pair in my home. I live that, in an you area. See, you've probably noticed them before. <laughs> yeah. uh, in my hometown, uh, where my parents still live, and um, every, once in a while, every once in a while when I go home and visit, I'll see one of them flying overhead and. They are just impressively huge. Yeah, true. So we have a solid candidate now for a misidentified bird in the area that would fit a number of the Phantom's characteristics, including mm -hmm, mm -hmm, its mm -hmm. appearance in 2017. We were initially looking for one species that could fulfill all of the criteria at once. Right. But as this helpful internet stranger points out, different sightings may involve different stuff. So mm -hmm. now we have a better idea of internet at least one stranger. possible explanation 
for what's going on. So I'm slowly learning how to use Reddit, and it's really exciting. Mm. <laughs> so now we can move on to the uh, story I have picked out for this week. For my topic this week, I spent a good deal of time doing my research through these smooth, flat things I understand are called books. <laughs> Boox. 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 Uh, I'll start with an excerpt out of Strange Mysteries from Around the World by Seymour Simon. I would rather see less Simon, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, and actually, that dude told me to do a lot of shit when I was a kid, and I just <laughs> got sick of it. So I got this book about 21 years ago, and actually only just remember that I still owned it a couple of hours ago. <laughs> I spent way too long <laughs> looking online for the specific accounts that I knew were in this book. Right. Like, wait a minute. Do I just have that book here? So then I checked You're and, like holding it. You're using it as a computer stand. So I got this book from that wonderful, wonderful grade school throwback, The Book Fair. Oh, nice. One of the ma- the magical time each, uh, was it like twice a year or something that that would happen? I don't know. Right. I think it was two times a year. Once in the spring, once in the fall, I'm yeah. going to say. Yeah. And so you, you get the catalog and um, yeah. Ooh, circle, circle all the books you what want your parents to, to buy for you. And it was just magical. And it was actually arrived. pretty fun. So here's a quote from that there book. For many years, the Museum of the American Indian in New York City has had a terrible name, but also uh, (laughs) an unusual object on display. It was a life-size sculpture of a human skull carved from a single piece of quartz or rock crystal. Mm. As the crystal skull turned slowly on its rotating base, it glittered and sparkled like a huge diamond. But the crystal skull was more than just a beautiful object of art. Some people thought the skull was surrounded by a strange halo of its own light at certain times. Mm. They thought that the skull gave off silvery, bell-like sounds. Strange images would appear inside the skull, and a peculiar smell was sometimes given off. <laughs> These people even insisted that the skull had the power to influence a person's mood and thoughts. Just imagining someone ripping one in the exhibit, and they're like, mm, weird, the skull smells so <laughs> horrible. Just try blame it on the skull. There's more skull smells. <laughs> the skull is said to be of Mayan origin. I'll get into a bit more detail of its history to this regard in just a bit. Cool. Quote, the surface of the skull is as smooth as glass. Smooth as eggs. That itself is a mystery. Rock crystal is a very hard mineral. If the surface had been smoothed by being rubbed down with sand, it would have taken hundreds of years of constant work by generations of artisans. Mm. The lower jaw of the skull is a separate piece, but carved from the same original chunk of quartz. The jaw fits tightly into two polished sockets that can be moved up and down so that it looks like the mouth is opening and closing. Hmm. Channels have been hollowed out in the skull, reaching from the bottom to the eye sockets. If a light is placed beneath the skull, it makes the eyes flicker in an eerie way. That's pretty cool. Mm. The skull measures about 5 inches high by 7 inches long and 5 inches wide. It weighs 11 pounds, 7 ounces, or 5.19 kilograms. Mm. Let me show you what it looks like. Oh, look at that guy. It's cool. <laughs> he looks like he's like... <laughs> Mouth is just slightly agape. Slightly open. So people have some pretty uh, amazing and varied claims about the skull's properties. Mm-hmm. Again, from strange mysteries from around the world. Quote... In 1956, Frank Dorland, an art expert, started to study the skull and conduct tests on it. For six years, he studied the skull and tried to find out what it was and what its properties were. He claimed that when he kept the skull in his house for study, weird things began to happen. Mm. Uh, When he went to sleep, he and his wife were awakened by unusual noises in the house. Hmm. They heard what sounded like a large jungle cat prowling around the house. What? They also heard the sound of chimes and bells. Holy shit. Dorno went on to state that when he awoke the next morning, the rooms in his house were in a mess, with his things strewn about all over. But the windows to the rooms were all closed and locked. That's crazy. The skull is also supposedly always at a constant temperature of about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, roughly 21 degrees Celsius, Mm. even when put in a refrigerator. 
Okay. Supposedly. <laughs> so they say. Uh, Darlin and other persons who viewed the skull when he was studying it insisted that the skull changed its appearance from time to time. Its colors changed from clear crystal to shades of green, violet, purple, red, blue, and amber. That could be just light refracting, though, couldn't it? Yeah, I'm sure it has nothing to do with any objects in the room that have color of their own. Yeah. <laughs> and a clear, transparent skull. Dear God. <laughs> it also sometimes had a heavy odor like that of moist earth. According to Dorland, hmm. people observing the skull heard all kinds of noises, from chimes and bells to what sounded like soft human voices. Observers also experienced tightness in their muscles and a rise in blood rate and blood pressure. Excuse me, a rise in blood pulse rate. Oh, and God, blood the pressure. blood rate is rising. <laughs> oh, my blood, it's happening so fast. <laughs> it's happening again. Here's a more recent observation. If a laser beam is directed at a point in the middle of the nose cavity, the entire skull becomes fully lighted. That's kind of cool. That's cool. Joshua Shapiro co-author of Mysteries of the Crystal Skulls Revealed, claims that people who have been in the presence of this and other crystal skulls experience healing and expanded psychic abilities. Okay. Quote, We believe that crystal skulls are a form of computer which are able to record energy and vibration that occur around them, he writes. But, wait, one more time. We believe the crystal skulls are a form of computer which are able to record energy and vibration that occur around them. I thought that was what he had said the first time. And unfortunately, that is exactly what he said. Form of computer. <laughs> the skull will pictorially replay all events or images of the people who have come into contact with them, i.e., they contain the history of our world. End quote. Mm-hmm. So, generally speaking, we're talking about supposed Mesoamerican artifacts of mysterious origin with mystical properties stemming primarily from its unique optics and its being made of quartz crystal. Quartz. Now, I've already talked a bit about quartz and other crystals as recently as episodes 19 and 20. Yeah, you did. Regular listeners know how you and I feel about the notion of crystal vibration and energy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But to reiterate, quartz is very cool and can do very cool things involving vibrational frequency, Mm -hmm. but not on its own. No, indeed. That is, quartz and other crystals don't just sit there and vibrate. Uh, Vibration has to be applied to them. And then they vibrate at their specific resonant frequency. Unless they're a crystal skull, in which case. In which case, they do actually just they do all those buzz things. around like a phone ringing. Yeah, like a jaguar. <laughs> yes. And again, this is true. The idea of applying a vibration to something and it is then vibrating at its own resonant frequency is true of all physical objects. Yeah, it turns out. So I joined the company of a great many scientists who were not so immediately convinced about a skull-shaped piece of crystal having supernatural abilities. Mm -hmm. To better understand the deal with these skulls, we're going to dig now into the history of the specific one I've been talking about the most, which is the Mitchell Hedges skull. Boy, won't you realize you've been wrong. (laughs) I can't wait to see your face. I was a fool. The skull is all real. What do you think's under this skin, buddy? (laughs) You just peel over. Oh, God. You have a crystal skull. For some reason, any time a skull is viewed, it starts chattering its teeth like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has to. <laughs> it has no choice. It's the only way it communicates. Uh, I'm now going to turn to a book called Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World from mm. 1980 by Simon Welfare and John Fairley. Quote, F.A. Mike Mitchell Hedges was a British adventurer who roamed the Americas during the early years of the 20th century, gambling with millionaires, riding the range as a cowboy, and fighting with Pancho Villa during the Mexican Revolution. Mm-hmm. Just generally being like, oh, America is a place for adventure. I'm going to go do that. Right. I'm a big boy. On one of his trips, Mitchell Hedges met up with a group of men in a hotel in Port Colborne, Ontario. With them was a small orphan named Anna Le Guillon, whom he adopted and who later took his name. 
Hmm. I, just in rereading this now, I'm wondering, he met up with a group of men and they gave him this girl. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, did he meet up with them so that he could acquire a daughter? Here's a little orphan. Her name's Annie, I think. But uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, it was Anna who discovered the crystal skull. Oh. In 1927, Mitchell Hedges was excavating the great Mayan city of Liba Antum in British Honduras, which is modern-day Belize. He had discovered the city a few years earlier during a search for the lost city of Atlantis, which he believed to be in the area. Mm. So he was looking for Atlantis. He found Luba Antum. Arby's. Luba uh, Antum. On her 17th birthday, Anna noticed something beneath an ancient altar. It was the top half of the crystal skull. Three months later, she found its detachable lower jaw, which had become <laughs> separated from the rest of the head. According to Miss Mitchell Hedges, her father gave the skull to the Mayans who lived in the area. Quote, they prayed to it, she says, and told father it was their god used for healing or to will death. When the expedition left the ancient city later in 1927, quote, the Mayan people gave my father the skull as a parting gift because he had been so good to them, bringing them medicines and clothing. Right away, the skull and its discovery caused controversy. The controversy. <laughs> caused controversy. Uh, people were skeptical about why it wasn't logged in the expedition itself. Mm-hmm. This has been true for a number of... <laughs> I've had about two sips of beer. This shouldn't be happening already. Uh, this has been true for a number of other crystal skulls. Unique that were... New York. <laughs> Boom. Well, laddie freaking da, Mr. I already drank my beer and I That's can right. still talk. I drank it. I can't talk... And ever, regardless of if I've had, if I've had see, <laughs> regardless of if I've had beer or not, now I'm just getting it in my head. Uh, no, no, I don't mean to do this. <laughs> Carry on. This has been true for a number of other crystal skulls that were supposedly discovered at other sites. Okay. Another question was why Anna didn't find the lower jaw for three whole months. Yeah, right. Or why no one else found it before she did. She made it. She just whipped it up. <laughs> what are you working on there, Anna? <laughs> not, nothing, nothing. Nothing. It's not a crystal skull. Your arms look really big and strong right now. <laughs> You've done like 150 years worth of manual labor. And- <laughs> yeah. Uh, Your calluses are five inches thick. <laughs> Inevitably, the vagueness of the story led some people to speculate that the skull might not have come. Years. Sorry, <laughs> might not have come from the Mayan city at all, and that it had been planted by the altar so that Anna would be sure to find it. Ooh! Since the day of the find was her seventeenth birthday, and since she had been, apparently been depressed after a bout of malaria, and I don't know about you, but I always that always gets me way down. It like, gets just, me way down. Uh, perhaps the argument ran: her father had planned the discovery to cheer her up. He could have acquired it on his travels in Mexico. Mitchell Hedges had only this to say of the skull while writing of a 1948 trip to Africa. Quote, We took with us also the sinister skull of doom of which much has been written. How it came into my possession, I have reason for not revealing. <laughs> the skull of doom is made of pure rock crystal and according to scientists must have taken 150 years, generation after generation, working all the days of their lives, patiently rubbing down with sand an immense block of rock crystal until the perfect skull emerged. It Man. is uh, yeah, It is at least 3,600 years old, and according to legend, was used by the high priest of the Maya when performing esoteric rites. It is said that when he willed death with the help of the skull, death invariably followed. Hmm. It, has been des- uh, it has been described as the embodiment of all evil. Wow. So that's what he had to say of the skull. Have they done the math on it? Would it really have taken 150 years through just hand sanding? A bunch of different estimates have been given, but uh, yeah, all of them put it at being a really long damn time. That's crazy. Because, um, yeah, quartz is a really, really hard uh, mineral, so... By it, hand, you're just like... Fuck, yeah. Wow, that's really awesome. Yeah. Now, that said, there are quartz relics from Mesoamerica that were hand-hewn 
but they aren't they're not all smooth like that. the idea is like to polish it that smoothly would make it take that much longer right whereas the stuff they have like their different crystal goblets and stuff that are pretty cool looking they look really great they have the uh, shape but they don't have the they don't have the glass finish the, yeah right yeah right. they are more i guess a kind of matte finish sort of a frosted uh coat <laughs> surface uh, kind of treatment similar claims and ancient origins have been proposed for all the major crystal skulls that have turned up in the world they're ancient Mayan or Aztec relics. They're incredibly old. The craftsmanship is nuts, etc. Um, so let's conclude here by poking all manner of holes under these claims. Poke away. Uh, skulls are frequently depicted in Mesoamerican artwork, so it's not outside the realm of possibility that sculptures like these might have been made if it were possible. So mm-hmm. skulls are just a you know kind of staple of their diet. depictions and st- <laughs> diet. <laughs> um, however, the supposed legendary status is not in any way supported by you know, legends. No, indeed. Uh, no mention of crystal skulls comes up in any of these cultures, despite what Whitey says. Especially Dan Aykroyd. Yes, I meant. Oh, I forgot. I meant to m- mention uh, the Crystal Skull Vodka. <laughs> I was. Yeah. Dan Aykroyd uh, created his own brand of vodka for some reason to just kind of cement <laughs> his having lost his damn mind. Since for some <laughs> reason is exactly the reason. <laughs> Never had it, though. I would like to try it. Yeah, I might as well get some sometime. We should be drinking that today, actually. Instead of beer, we should just drink straight vodka. <laughs> the show would end a lot faster. Mm-hmm. So seriously. But somehow I would be very articulate. Yeah, he would the, be turn me around perfectly now. articulate. <laughs> no. Uh, They're not, not in Legends, these yeah, skulls. Yeah, no, they are just something that was made up by white people. I want an adventure. Exactly. So to that end, the time of the various skulls' discoveries lined up to a time when Europeans were just totally into ancient civilizations and exploring mm-hmm. and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. They were just 100% ready to embrace anything mysterious, spooky, and fun-sounding that had even a hint of ancient Maya or Aztec attached to it. Right. By the time any of the books I cited were written, no scientific studies had been able to conclude anything other than the fact that these skulls had been carved, that they were quartz, and that based on those two things, it would have taken forever to do. Right. In 2007, however, scanning electron microscope, or SEM, studies of the Mm. Mitchell Hedges skull showed that the quartz had in fact been tooled with metal rotary tools dating to the mid-19th century. Oh, shit. Yeah. From a National Geographic article on the subject, quote, a British museum study in fact pinpointed the manufacture of most of the skulls to an area of Germany famous for manufacturing intricate quartz and crystal designs <laughs> in the late 19th century. How do you like that? Yeah. Wow. Uh, the skull in the British Museum also showed traces of chlorite in the crystal, which characterizes quartz found only in two places in the world, Brazil and Madagascar. Ooh. Thus, there's no damn way anyone in Central America could have gotten these specific crystals to carve them in the first place. What about Brazil, though? To go all the way to Brazil and then mine for crystal and yeah, then bring fair. it back. And it would, I mean, it's I technically mean, through degrees possible. by trade, perhaps, though. Maybe. It's technically possible, but pretty unlikely that it would have been to get a crystal that big. Right. And then to, um, like, no one would want to trade for it because it's so, it would have been really valuable and sure. cool. So pretty unlikely that it's technically possible, but pretty unlikely. I mean, way. either way, the machining is The machining part of it damning. makes it pretty, yeah, uh, yeah. So instead of being you know, found and made there, they were tooled in Europe, sold and distributed, and later assigned mystical ancient backgrounds mm. after the fact. Uh, as a final nail in the coffin, one last test was conducted by forensic scientist Gloria Nuss. This is for a National Geographic special that um, she was interviewed in and stuff. Mm. Uh, it was suspected that the Mitchell Hedges skull was modeled after an actual skull. 
<laughs> so, Nuss performed a facial reconstruction over a replica of the skull. Did she get, like, a Lego person head? <laughs> yes, she did. Now, only to find that it was likely modeled off of a European woman's skull. What? Yeah. Damn. I always forget, you know, forensic scientists, I mean, they do so many studies and stuff, but when they do the facial reconstructions from Could the skull possibly stuff, be that anatomically accurate, though? That you could get... Uh, let me see it again. Let me yeah, see that skull. show you the picture again. It's pretty damn good. <sighs> Not all of them are. A lot of them are more stylized and stuff, but a lot of them still come up with the same problems. Like, the details are too perfect in terms of, like, the straight lines and stuff. There's so right. many things that point to modern tools, and then on closer analysis... Oh. You know what's funny? funny? What's that? See on the cover? cover yeah, yeah. No, just a bigger picture on... Yeah, I guess it is a little bigger. Yeah. Carry on. Otherwise, I would have the cover wide. So, yeah, facial reconstruction involves, like, modeling muscles onto the skull based on where the connection points would be. What are you doing? <laughs> See how big that picture is? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the the other image overlaid <laughs> behind it is, in fact, I'm bigger. I'm sorry. I'm completely... <laughs> Give me that back. Stupid. <laughs> Model the muscle on top of the bones as it would lay based on what the muscle connection points look like. And right. you can actually determine what the face, face right. shape would be and then add skin on top of that and stuff. And so she's able to determine, oh, this was a woman's skull and it looked like it was probably a European person. That's very interesting. Yeah. So that's the skulls that so many people have for so long liked to assume fantastic origins and properties of, in fact, are just modern collectibles. How about that? Damn. Yeah. And the source of inspiration for an Indiana Jones adjacent movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I didn't actually know until researching it today. I, I had known about the Crystal Skulls and the stuff they're supposed to be able to do. I just thought, that, oh, there's some kind of cool old things that right. don't actually do this mystical stuff. Turns out they're not even old things. That's so interesting because, yeah, yeah I've, I've always known the, the legend of the 13 skulls. Yes, exactly. How they yeah. were distributed around the globe and when brought together they would help sort of I don't know, necessarily help. They would, like, signify the heralding of the end days. So, um, yeah. So but, they're in different collections around the world and stuff, and they're all, like, at least a few seem to all have been made by the same German, like, crystal sculptors. Wow. Uh, from the Crystal Sculptor should be their name, actually. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but others were just made, you know, different time frames after the fact. People right. making skulls and be like, oh, yeah, I have one, too. I found it in X, Y, or Z expedition. None of the archaeological expeditions in these specific sites mentioned ever have record of those specific artifacts being found, mm. which seems like it would be a pretty big thing yeah, be to omit. One. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, we found this fucking cool skull. Right. Scratch that. Just found some dirt. <laughs> wow. That's cool. Yeah. So that's what I got today. Indeed. Well, dare we move into Shadowlands Roulette? Right. So the rules are simple. We go to Shadowlands.net, the ancient <laughs> website of... Um, <laughs> it is ancient. <laughs> it really is. By internet era, it's... It's pretty damn old. It's ancient. cool. And it's a good site to find, um, among other things, stories of hauntings in all kinds of parts of the country and the world in general. So what we will do is flip a coin to determine whether we're going in the U.S. or not. The haunted coin. <laughs> and Full of evil. And then we will, uh, so heads, heads or tails for the U.S.? Uh, heads. Okay. Catch it. It okay. didn't flip. No, it flipped. <laughs> okay, heads. Heads. Oh, am I going first? Uh, sure. So now let's determine which state um, we're going to. We will spin the accursed wheel of states. <laughs> a 
Oh, we got 45, 45. baby. 45. So there are, let's see. Oh, we should really make a spreadsheet. <laughs> well, there are, oh, we just count back we from should. 51. There are 17 states per column, if that helps. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do Vermont. Just count back. Vermont. <laughs> Alrighty, so let's see. Scroll, 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 scroll. Rutland High School. Rutland. When Rutland High School was first getting built, there was a man who operated the cement mixer. He was called Smokey because he smoked like six packs a day. Well, one day, he disappeared. The foreman thought he just took <laughs> off and didn't give thing. it a second thought. Once the school opened, girls started smelling smoke in the girls' locker room. <laughs> At first, everyone thought that someone was smoking before gym class. The female gym teacher then stood guard to catch anyone smoking. She never caught anyone, but the smoke smell is always there! Oh my god. The end. <laughs> That's literally it. <laughs> well, Alright, you do not know what you're going to get and how dumb it's going to be. Alright, my turn. Alrighty. The so, accursed coin. Accursed coin. That's a better flip than I did. We got tails, Tails. Alrighty, that is... The rest of the world. Shall I spin the spin accursed the... wheel of the rest of the world? <laughs> the other wheel we had built for this very reason. Exactly. We made them so big. <laughs> 41. Oh, 41. God, Jake. <sighs> How Just many back are... Back from three. <laughs> okay. From 43. So South, South Korea. Korea. <laughs> South Korea. There are two <laughs> entries. <laughs> Let me scroll through them. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Osan Air Force Base. Mm. Hill 180. The site of the first battle between American and North Korean communist forces during the opening months of the Korean War. A depleted American unit closed with and destroyed a communist unit which was entrenched on the hill. Hmm. Both sides ran out of ammunition, which is a proper noun in this case. Yeah. <laughs> and gave the area its, ammunition. its present name, Bayonet Hill. Any time you walk the road on the hill alone, you will hear whispers very close by. And if you stop at the top of the hill for a few moments, you will feel warm breath on your neck slash ears. Ooh, this is kind of a sensual hill. These things happen constantly to anyone going alone there. Just continuously when you get there. <laughs> the spirits are harmless, just like messing with people. <laughs> I take it as proof they are soldiers. That's all the proof I needed. The hot breath on my neck. The whispering in my ear. <laughs> Soldier action, if I ever heard it. Absolutely. Well, there you go, guys. I hope you all enjoyed Shadowlands, Shadowlands Roulette. Roulette. <laughs> I almost said wheel of <laughs> Shadowlands. <laughs> that could be the alternate name. <laughs> Awesome. You want to lead us into your story, yes, Senor yes, Shell. So my cryptic artifact for today is the Voynich Manuscript. Voynich. Voynich. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Voynich. <laughs> That's how it's pronounced. <laughs> Every time you have to do a Jerry Lewis impression. Voynich. <laughs> um, but first we can set the scene with a brief story of the manuscript's namesake, Wilfred. <laughs> God. <laughs> Voynich. <laughs> Born Michael Habdank Vajnich. I'm probably butchering the shit out of that pronunciation. but That's what we do. In Lithuania in 1865, he was a Polish revolutionary and bibliophile. Voynich led an incredible life unto himself. I'll stop doing that. He would graduate from Moscow University in chemistry. 
and became a licensed pharmacist. He would later be arrested for attempting to free revolutionary co-conspirators from the Warsaw Citadel Hmm. and would eventually acquire a working knowledge of 18 different languages. Shit. He would escape from prison and flee to London, um, where he became a bookseller on the advice of a friend. (laughs) Hey, dude, you just uh, sell books. He's like, okay, I'll do that. In 1898, Voynich opened a bookshop in London and was apparently very skilled at rustling up rare and interesting books to stock his shelves. He would mm-hmm. go on to operate one of the largest book businesses in the world at the time and would later sail across the pond to open a bookstore in New York City. He eventually returned to London to operate a bookshop yet again on Piccadilly. Um, he would die in 1930 at the age of 64, and among his various um, was a mysterious manuscript <laughs> he said he acquired in 1912 at the Villa Mondragon in Italy. At the time of purchase, a cover letter written in 1665 was still in this manuscript. Hmm. So this is the Voynich Manuscript, and I'll read that letter now. Reverend and distinguished sir, father in Christ... This book bequeathed to me by an intimate friend, I destined for you. A fuck buddy? A fuck buddy. (laughs) Um, My very dear Athanasius, Athanasius, as soon as it came into my possession, for I was convinced that it could be read by no one except yourself. The former owner of this book asked your opinion by letter, copying and sending you a portion of the book from which he believed you would be able to read the remainder, but he at that time refused to send the book itself. To its deciphering, he devoted unflagging toil, as is apparent from attempts of his, which I send you herewith, and he relinquished hope only with his life. But his toil was in vain, for such sphinxes as these obey no one but their master, Kircher, who was a Jesuit scholar, um, Athanasius Kircher, from the Collegio Romano, who claimed to have deciphered the Egyptian hieroglyphs. Hmm. Returning to the letter. Uh, Except now this token, as such as it is, and long overdue though it may be, of my affection for you, and burst through its bars, if there are any, with your wanted success. Dr. Raphael, a tutor in the Bohemian language to Ferdinand III, then King of Bohemia, told me the said book belonged to the Emperor Rudolf, and that he presented to the bearer who brought him the book 600 ducats. Oh, that's a lot of ducats. It's all the ducats. I think they only made 600. (laughs) Uh, He believed the author was Roger Bacon, the Englishman. On this point, I suspend judgment. It is your place to define for us what view we should take thereon, to whose favor and kindness I unreservedly commit myself and remain at the command of your reverence, Joannes Marcus Marcy of Cronland, Prague. And this is in August 1665. That was a little while ago. Just a bit. Voynich Manuscript. It has come to be known as, uh, remains one of the great cryptic codices in existence. Ooh. And is one of my favorite strange and legendary artifacts. So, what is it? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What? Um, Let me just start by showing you, because Jake, I don't think you've actually seen the manuscript yet, have you? I saw some pictures, but that's it. I was just going to show you some more then. Um, And if you want to describe what you're looking at for the listeners. It's just so many dicks. (laughs) (laughs) 
No one can uh, understand like, why. Like Drew so many dicks. Uh, that previous one looks like some kind of a root vegetable. This one is some kind of a root vegetable. Root vegetable. Uh, it seems to be some just like botanical specimens of sorts, and writing around them in a script I am unaware of. Quite so, as you described. The manuscript, which consists of 240 illustrated vellum pages, for those who don't know, vellum is a prepared animal skin or membrane used as a writing substrate, mm-hmm. uh, was created just after the year 1400, um, based on radiocarbon dating. Wow. Uh, it presents page after page of detailed illustrations accompanied by lines of text. However, the text is written in an unknown and possibly constructed language. Wow. The pages, which are collected into units of 25, referred to as choirs, um, Q-U-I-R-E-S, for a fun term you can throw around at trivia, appear to be arrangeable as six sections. The first is the herbal section, which contains drawings of plants primarily. Mm-hmm. The second is astronomical, which contains sort of zodiac-like illustrations. Oh. The third is biological, which mainly features drawings of female human figures um, doing various activities. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> biological, more like... Fuck buddies? Fuck buddies. <laughs> oh, my God. They, that's, they, <laughs> the only word that was not encrypted was <laughs> proudly scrawled across the top of this section. Um, number four is cosmological, which presents a series of circular, strange illustrations. Then there is a pharmaceutical section, um, which presents drawings of small containers and parts of plants. And then finally, there is the stars, or sometimes referred to as recipes section, um, which just features uh, prominent figures of the era. Just kidding. Features (laughs) dense text with drawings of stars in the margins. Um, They're all unique uh, stars, and those stars variously feature later on. Okay. So, um, based on the numbering and observable page gaps, the manuscript is likely to have originally contained at least 272 pages. Damn. So, about 32 or more have been lost over time, and already had been lost when Voynich grabbed it back in 1912. Um, Some pages are foldable sheets that can be sort of pulled out to reveal larger diagrams. And altogether, looking through it kind of evokes a sense of integrated biological, cosmological, and alchemical vibes, if you will. The natural sciences. Right. Um, And this mystical quality, in combination with this kind of cryptic text, have led people to speculate wildly on this thing. Mm. So the VMS, if you will, um, has been suggested to be anything from just a really carefully constructed hoax to a kind of, you know, encyclopedia of lost knowledge, to an extraterrestrial scientific journal. <laughs> that sounds less likely. A little bit less likely, exactly. <laughs> Can I see the um, the writing again? Yes. The script in which it is written. There's a little bit for you. All right. Now, I do think I recognize this. I think that's Cinderin. The Elvish language from... Uh, You know what? No joke. I was actually going to describe that. I drafted for myself earlier that if you've never seen the Voynich Manuscript and you're wondering what this text looks like, exactly what Jake has just said. It looks like uh, Elvish writing from the Lord of the Rings books. The Lord of the Rings books. Exactly. Precisely. Because basically Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy as an excuse to write languages. He loved languages. So he made up several languages for these made up cultures and then made a whole history for them that became... Super awesome high fantasy. Oh, yes. And if you can read the Silmarillion, you are a straight baller. <laughs> Getting into the images and text. Um, as I've mentioned, many pages in the manuscript contain detailed drawings or charts. 
plants of various kinds are drawn to show them the roots, stems, leaves, and flowers or other interesting features. Um, these often seem to depict root grafting. So the upper portion of the plant will meet its roots at a kind of incongruous junction. It seems to be sort of like stuck on. Hmm. Um, and the roots themselves are like very disproportionately larger or smaller from the rest of the plant. So it seems like a graft. A lot of people have suggested it's like a how-to graft plants kind of guy. Oh, cool. In other portions of the piece, uh, women can be seen either bathing or operating strange kind of like almost semi-organic machines, it looks like. Hmm. Um, all of which seem to be associated with water in some way. So like really weird showers. Uh, <laughs> the contraptions kind of look to me a bit like the machines used on the Sneeches from Dr. Seuss. Um, <laughs> as we all know, Sneeches get stitches. <laughs> on one of the fold-out pages, a crazy series of interconnecting circular areas, each with very specific details unto itself, surrounds a strange central circle in which some contraption is like situated hmm. and like all of these little various portions i mean if you were just to look at it with no words on the page you would just be like this is just some crazy doodle but he, someone has gone in and like labeled things so carefully wow. that it seems more like you know a scientific figure or something wow or it gives you that impression it gives me that impression i should i should say they don't assume what impression it gives me yeah right it's not my place to say son of a bitch <laughs> take your assumptions so, based on modern analysis using polarized light microscopy, or PLM, Pum. Pum. it has been determined that a quill pen and iron gall ink were used for the text and figure outlines. Hmm. The colored paint was applied to the figures later. I think, actually, the fact that it was applied later on validates a suggestion by many that this was done through a series of hands. It wasn't just one person sitting down to work on this thing necessarily. It could yeah. have been a, a series. The blue, clear, or white, uh, red, brown, and green paints of the manuscript have been thoroughly analyzed also using this PLM. The other colors have been totally ignored. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are the lesser colors. Um Using, uh, as well as through scanning electron microscopy and other methods. SEM, as we've established. Yes. That's SEM. That's SEM. Pull kind of, and SEM. SEM kind of analysis. Um, to analyze the beams. The beams? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You guys are still with this, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and there are other methods they've used, but I'm not going to get into them. The pigments basically were all inexpensive and decidedly earthbound, so sorry, E.T. fans. Mm -hmm. It wasn't some kind of cosmic paint. Or the aliens just used the stuff they found here. Oh, yeah, you know, they're just <laughs> using their local resources. That's the answer. Every page in the manuscript, and just like Jake said, this is where I was mentioning the elvish look of the text, but um, exactly, if you've never seen it, just think of Lord of the Rings. Uh, every page contains this text running left to right, Though some pages feature uh, extraneous writing in Latin script, like in the margins, hmm. um, most of the textual characters are composed of one or two simple pen strokes, and just 20 to 25 characters account for virtually all of the text. There's virtually no punctuation, though. Mm. So how can they tell which direction it runs? I think just through the structure of the way things are laid out. Okay. But yeah, that's one thing they're relatively confident about. Um, and again, you can think of these characters as letters. So, yeah. you know, much like we can assemble all matter of... Is it 20 to 25? We have 26. Oh, to see, our as far as the number. Oh, yeah. yeah. 20 to 25. The reason there's a range is some people debate the distinction of some of the characters. Some yeah. Like different. 
different so, iterations of the same letter, just being a little bit different. Because ex- everyone's handwriting exactly. is consistent every time they write the same letter. Right. Um, but yeah, that would, that would correspond to letters pretty well because, we, as you said, we have 26 in our alphabet, which seems to cover all the sounds we need. There are some slightly different sounds in different languages, so the alphabet length varies a little bit, so that could give you the range of 20 to 25. Makes right. sense. Exactly. Um, on any given page... The text is usually written in a single column with paragraph divisions, despite not having clear punctuation. And sometimes there are stars, like I mentioned before, in the margins. Hmm. And these star figures are... Star figures. They're just these star, star shapes. Yes, these star men. These David Bowies. Exactly. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. They are distinct from one another. So it's like, you know, a five-pointed star, all these different things, and they they will variously be assigned to different parts of the text, which adds to another layer of like, what does this signify? Why do they put that exact character there? More intriguing still, there are no indications of any errors or corrections made at any place in the document, suggesting that the creator either had a clear idea of what he or she was doing or could have been encoding pre-written notes. However, the inking suggests that there is no delay between characters, as one might normally expect to see when looking over someone who's encoded text. Mm. So whatever they're doing, they're doing it with a really smooth hand. So they know what they're writing. They know what they're like, writing exactly, fluently. very fluently, and they don't have to like sit there and be like, wait, what was the uh, character for, you know, going to school? Oh, it's a school bus. Explains all the school buses to keep appearing randomly throughout the whole thing over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> Why is there a school bus, a modern school bus, in this text written in 1400? So, in total, the manuscript contains over 170,000 characters, um, with spaces dividing the text into about 35,000 groups of varying length, usually referred to either as words or word tokens, because we don't really know for sure yet how this whole thing has been codified let's say about 8,000 of which uh, of these sort of word bits are considered unique word types so they're used either a few times or are very clearly like oh this package always comes together you know what I mean you say that the characters are bits and the word things are bytes maybe yeah there you go (laughs) (laughs) I like that Um, exactly Uh, so the structure of the word seems to follow uh, phonological or orthographic laws. If you don't know what orthography is, it is simply the set of conventions that one uses to write a language. So this includes spelling, punctuation, capitalization at certain places, other structural and like grammatical applications. So mm-hmm. it all seems to sort of obey that um, as far as people can tell. So for example, certain characters must appear in each word, much like English vowels would. Um, some yeah. characters never follow others, um, or some may be doubled or tripled. So you could assume that some of those are I's and or E's, not following C's. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, there you go. It, exactly, though. However, many other aspects of the structure are not as clear. Um, Professor Gonzalo Rubio, um, who's an expert in ancient languages at Penn State, uh, has stated, quote, the things we know as, quote, unquote, grammatical markers things that occur commonly at the beginning or end of words, such as S or D in our language, and that are used to express grammar, never appear in the middle of quote-unquote words in the Voynich manuscript. That's unheard of for any Indo-European, Hungarian, or Finnish language. Hmm. So the coding is weird, basically. The distribution of letters within the text is also strange. Uh, Stephen Vonfeldt studied some of the statistical properties of the distribution of the letters overall and their correlations among themselves. 
So that sounds kind of complex, and I'm sure it is. Um, but basically, he's trying to get a sense of the language's average rhythm and assonance. Mm. And he found that, at least in these aspects, the script is more similar to Chinese than any European language. Interesting. Yeah, very much so, I thought. Um, so what do we think we know? Of course, I've gone ahead and nabbed a few, let's call them amateur theories to kick us off, <laughs> um, a.k.a. comments on the open source manuscript itself. <laughs> That's the other cool thing about this is anyone can go dig it up. It's totally open to be downloaded and looked over. So if you guys at home want to uh, follow the links that we'll have associated with this episode, go to you can... Veeams.biz and you'll find it. <laughs> Veeams.biz.co.usa <laughs> slash Netflix. <laughs> So here's a few theories. The Trippy Cosmos Guide. Each time I have done DMT, I've seen some of those plants. Whether it is only inches away, but on a different vibration, or somewhere across the universe transported instantly, I believe the Voynich Manuscript is describing a very real place with many similarities to those on Earth, ensuring some possible laws of the universe looking at the pages that suggest zodiac horoscope charts and galaxy maps. So whoever wrote the manuscript was... Straight doing, tripping. Yeah, it was tripping and seeing these things and then recording what they saw. I mean, I could see that being a possibility where if someone back then was, was tripping on some kind of drug and believed that it was visions into a different reality or some That's kind of true. important thing, they might want to try and make a textbook, essentially, of what it was they were observing. So it's like a trip log, yeah. if you will. Yeah, that's actually so, pretty legit. <laughs> I had written that one down as almost like a, <laughs> get a load of this, but I'm now convinced. The person is also a drug user, it sounds like, who believes that it is, in fact, a view into another reality. But right. <laughs> <laughs> but it could I mean, be that they are of the same line to someone who may have done it back then. Exactly, which is ultimately the answer we want to find. Another popular theory is the Grand Con. So here's one guy's articulation. As it is said, the book like this written in Latin would have been valuable at the time. So there is some rich duke who wants to seem intellectual and own a scientific book. Somebody hears about this and sees a possibility to make money. He pays a bookmaker to make a book that looks like a uh, like scientific book, but written in gibberish. So that he duke, <laughs> easily the duke, won't know what the book is about. Book seems legit, so he pays a good money to and brags to his friends as he owns a scientific book. So that's what this book is. <laughs> that's such a convoluted plan. <sighs> if you want to look smart and own a scientific book, you decide to hire a bookmaker, not to just make you one, but to invent a fake language to make a book that looks scientific but isn't. When I do like it, though, because it's... people near him would just be like, what the fuck does this say? He could just be like, oh, yeah, that's talking about the... Yeah, I guess you could just you know, you could bullshit your way through whatever. I could it is make it whatever smart. the fuck I want and be a smart guy now. Yeah, it just seems like how much would you have to pay to make someone make a language that we're finding out centuries later remains so many rules that make sense. Yeah, right. It clearly is encoding something. It, it seems to, if it's meant to be just total gibberish that people, the, the lay person or the the average rich person wouldn't understand as language would. Um, it just wouldn't be that that structured. It seems like right. You could just go with whatever. It's like oh, that looks kind of like language. Whatever. Yeah, right, right, right. Why go through such an effort? Yeah. And then another theory... Unless drugs were involved. Yeah. Just combine, combine them. The, <laughs> yeah. into one. the grand unifying theory of the Venus. <laughs> the Voynich theory. The, the Voynich theory. Um, theory three, the original men's magazine. <laughs> if you analyze the overall context of the writings and its accompanying drawings, you can see that plants and women play into a theme. Finally... 
some man discovered and understood how women think and their minds work. He must have immediately thought to himself, I better write this down for all men everywhere. <laughs> Hence, the Voynich Manuscript was born. It easily explains the female mind. So, good one, so Tempest think, 790. Yes. <laughs> women are always thinking about themselves in complex showers yeah, and yeah. plants. And they're all <laughs> thinking about it in a made-up language. Exactly. Use some crazy contraption to, like, <laughs> do all that shit. So, we have a more researched slew of theories about who wrote the MS and why. That sounds more like it'd be up to our speed. Indeed. Uh, in 1943, Joseph Martin Feely published Roger Bacon's Cipher, The Right Key Found, in which he claimed that the book was a scientific diary written by Roger Bacon. Uh, Feely's method posited that the text was a highly abbreviated medieval Latin written in a simple substitution cipher. Uh, Roger Bacon was a Franciscan friar and polymath who lived from 1214 to 1294. As a philosopher captivated by the study of nature through empiricism, Bacon does sound like a pretty valid candidate, mm. but the dates don't seem to fit given mm. the manuscript's likely, likely creation in or after the early 1400s. Okay. Others think that the manuscript was simply a fabrication of Voynich himself. So, I mean, there are many other theories to be read. But I figured I'd talk about some recent efforts to actually decode the manuscript itself. Yeah. I feel like the idea of, when you first mentioned that he was had this remarkable ability to come across all these old books, I was like, sounds yeah. kind of forgery -y. Totally. No, it's... it's but, right, in this case, like, if, again, same as, like, with the um, person back in the day being hired to make a book that isn't actually real, for it to be so hard to penetrate so um but still seem to follow so many of its own rules it seems that much more unlikely that it could be just made up yeah it's true it's another case of like if it is a hoax it's, it's such a complicated why go hoax? through yeah. so much effort yeah yeah so we have two very recent efforts i'll read actually the more recent one first just because i like this slightly older one more okay and i would rather end on that note so just recently, a uh, paper was published presenting sort of an AI approach to cracking the code. So Bradley Hauer and Gregor Kondrak, I'm probably mispronouncing his head. To spell it out, it's G-R-Z-E-R-G-O-R-Z. -E so Cool. Yeah. They're at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. And their paper is entitled, Decoding Anagram Texts Written in an Unknown Language and Script. Um, in which they use the Voynich manuscript as kind of an ultimate test for their deciphering algorithm. Okay. So they unleash what amounts to a complex AI, which they claim has a 97% accuracy rate decoding 380 known languages. Shit. So this thing knows, if it can, what it's doing. The program determined that the Voynich manuscript is an encoded form of Hebrew, hmm. though they don't really go too far into translating the whole work. One of the two researchers said in a press release, quote, it turned out that over 80% of the words were in uh, a Hebrew dictionary, but we didn't know if they made sense together. According to the AI, the whole manuscript starts with, quote, she made recommendations to the priest, man of the house and me and people. <laughs> <laughs> so that doesn't exactly sell me, but I would be interested to see what the whole document well, looks like once yeah, they've applied that, that punctuation, to it. She made a recommendation to the priest, the man of the house, and the... Like, it could, it could kind of make some sense. Right. Like, it's punctuating kind of arbitrarily on it based on its own whatever totally. deal it does. Right, right. And then another that came out back in last year, September 2017, 
sort of proposes that it may be a women's health guide, nothing more, mm-hmm. nothing less. So this is through Ars Technica, which featured this uh, story. History researcher and television writer Nicholas Gibbs believes the book is actually a guide to women's health um, that's mostly plagiarized from other guides of the era, hilariously enough. <laughs> Um, after looking at the pages, Gibbs realized he was seeing a common form of medieval Latin abbreviations. So again, it kind of harkens back to Feely's yeah. um, approach, often used in medical treatises about herbs. Quote, from the herbarium incorporated into the Voynich manuscript, a standard pattern of abbreviations and ligatures emerged from each plant entry. The abbreviations correspond to the standard pattern of words used in the herbarium Apulius Platonicus, so, probably a very big tome on herbs. Mm-hmm. For instance, AQ equals aqua, water. DQ equals uh, decoca or decoctio. I don't know how sure. to... Decoction. And onward from there. Uh, so, this wasn't a code at all. It was just shorthand. The text would have been very familiar to anyone at the time who was interested in medicine. Further study of the herbs and images in the book reminded Gibbs of other Latin medical texts. When he consulted the Trotula and De Balnes Putiolanus, you know, those two, uh, two commonly copied medieval Latin medical books, he realized that a lot of the Voynich manuscripts' text and images had been plagiarized directly from them. Wow. So copying was a common practice of the era, so it's not surprising to find a text that could have been assembled from a series of direct transcriptions. Mm-hmm. And Gibbs sees the manuscript as a customized medical guide, possibly for one person, written essentially written in shorthand the whole way through. Uh, I really actually like that angle very much. Yeah. I mean, um, it seems like a very straightforward answer that makes a lot of sense based on the evidence. Exactly. I'm just curious why the shorthand it still seems so... Why the script looks so unlike other things that we can identify. And yeah, stuff. right, right. Well, I would wonder if it's just people not being very familiar with medieval Latin script. That makes sense. Because, I mean, I think about like, you know, say journalism shorthand, for example. I mean, right. this is going back further back than the current era of journalism. Where My mom does that, though. Stuff, she knows shorthand that yeah, way. Yeah, written shorthand is its own kind of thing that doesn't really look that much like normal not at all. stuff. So you'd be yeah. like, I don't, I don't know how to read that. I wouldn't know the first thing. Yeah. yeah. But it's a very common practice and something that would not be... I don't know how well it's recorded and taught as far as like if it would survive the ages for people to know, oh, that's right. journalism shorthand. Right. Seeing something written in it would be a little bit... might be really confusing at first. Right. So I guess that could make some sense. Yeah, right. Give give 600 years between now and uh, when shorthand was read again. Yeah. I don't know. So yeah, there you have it. Um, another theory I enjoy is just the thought of this being some kid's drawings and his father came in and scribbled some pretty nonsense all over it <laughs> nice drawing son but again my favorite aspect well not again for the first time ever uh, my favorite aspect of this whole thing is the way that this piece of i don't know literature this codex mm-hmm. uh, reveals just how diverse an array of narratives our need for ex- explanation can yield yeah because the manuscript perfectly blends detailed and evocative imagery with totally cryptic but seemingly structured messages it's like the perfect bait for straight up wild ass speculation. Yes, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, what is it actually trying to say? Where, when, how, why was it made? And by and for whom was it made? Like, all mm-hmm. these questions are absolutely valid and so open ended. And yet, there's so much there to sink your teeth into that you can just ask one person after another, and each will give you their own story as to how to resolve this kind of like 
dissonant quality of the whole thing. Drugs, aliens, pickup artists. Exactly. And all, <laughs> all of them. All over the place. And, you know, each one, you kind of take it onto itself and you're like, yeah, maybe. Could have been that. Could have been this. And so I just like that it, uh, you know, is simultaneously like the a certain high point to try to climb to as far as like what is the actual thing that we can empirically determine Mm -hmm. but also is so disarming in a sense of like wow you know it's just kind of fun to put a story to this thing that we just can't understand yeah and um a good reminder as well of how much we tend to do that even when we don't have much of anything to base our assessment on (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh this is probably what's happening you're dead wrong (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, there you go. That's what I had for you today. Well, very cool. I do like the idea of it being a mystery that is not yet solved and definitely isn't a hoax. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they were wearing a Voynich manuscript suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because with mine, I thought it was more just like, oh, cool, ancient, um, just phenomenon that people have just ascribed more ridiculous stuff to. But no, actually, it's just bullshit. It always has been. <laughs> it turns which, out. Yeah. Which sometimes that happens, and it's 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 kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that's, there's some mysterious artifacts for you today. We certainly will be able to find more in the future, I'm sure. There's that's all right. kinds of stuff in the uh, world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And a lot of it's weird. The so. first iPad. Oh. Oh. Game Boy Color. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely hit you up with some more stuff next week. Please feel free to share your own stories or Please suggestions do. or anything, anytime. You know how to contact us if you really put your mind to it. <laughs> put your back into it. <laughs> Look into your heart and you'll see our email address, which is contact at superstitious.com. <laughs> yeah, listen to the Crystal Skulls. They'll tell you where to go. That too. Also, we uh, I don't want to make a hard announcement of it yet because I don't really know when I'm going to get around to it, but we will be having all of our stuff's going to appear on YouTube soon. Oh, yeah. Um, we're be ready. Episodes there so that anytime we talk about a picture... The picture will pop up on screen anytime we talk about, you know, a particular source. The link will show up and stuff. It'll be great. And we'll also post additional material, just like different different content involving the two of us goofing around in video form. Be a couple form. goofs. So, so yeah. one more way to ingest the nonsense that is the two of us. That's right. <laughs> that sounds naughty. So on that note. <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch you next week. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Bye.